From News Talk 580-1059 KMJ, this is the Maddie Report, Valley Views Edition. Now here's your host, Mark Kepler. For over 100 years, the strategy for dealing with forest fires was fire suppression, essentially trying to get Mother Nature to change course. What we're finding out, however, is that it's not a very good idea to try to fool Mother Nature. A seminal report was issued several years ago entitled Fire on the Mountain that described the problem. It was published by the state's nonpartisan Little Hoover Commission. We talked to the chair of Little Hoover Commission, Pedro Nava, about that report. And while we all know about the immediate devastation that can be wrought on communities by a wildfire, Less is known about the longer-term impacts of the smoke generated from wildfires. In the second half of our program, we'll talk with Helen Kirsten. She's with the nonpartisan California Legislative Analyst Office about the impact of wildfire smoke. Those conversations in a moment. Funding for the Maddie Report is made possible by grants from the California Emerging Technology Fund, leaders in the quest for digital equity. The James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Fresno State Associated Students, Inc., students serving students. BNSF Railway, moving our economy for 160 years. And the wonderful company. The Maddie Report is also made possible thanks to contributions from Harris Ranch Inn & Restaurant and E&J Gallo Winery. From the Maddie Institute, the Public Policy Institute for the Valley's four public universities, this is the Maddie Report with Executive Director of the Maddie Institute, Mark Kepler. Welcome. Recently, California has been hit by historic forest fires. In fact, Governor Jerry Brown has described wildfires as now being a year-long phenomenon. Some think a factor may be how we've managed our forests, suggesting that we should literally fight fire with fire. That was a finding of a recent report by the Little Hoover Commission. The chair of the Little Hoover Commission, Pedro Nava, is our guest. Welcome to the Maddie Report. Thank you very much. So let's talk about the size of the Sierra Nevada forest. Uh, how big is it and how big a problem is this? Well, the uh, Sierra Nevadas are about 10 million acres in the Sierra Nevada. And in fact, California's forests comprise a full one-third um, of our land mass. So it's a significant portion of the state. Um, and it and put, it, put it in just in, in, in perspective, that's the size of New York, you said in your report. Well, I, I mean, that's, that's a large size. Well, it, and, and it is, you know, it is a resource that really isn't recognized, I think, by most Californians because it's not right in their backyard. Uh, but it contributes so much to our economic vitality and our environmental health as well. Yeah, and you were saying in your report that about 60% of the Sierra Nevada forest has really got a problem, too. Well, we have, uh, most of the people who think about the Sierra Nevadas and, the, and a, a problem, so to speak, are focused on the bark beetle. And in fact, that's why we first became interested in it. But when we started to look at the impacts of the bark beetle, we realized it was just a symptom. Um, it is just one of the issues uh, that is of a problem for our forest, but it goes much deeper than that. It goes um, all the way to forest management. And if we're going to have healthy forests, uh, we're going to have to become directly involved in what we do with our forests. So you were saying, so we got here, it wasn't just the bark beetle, you talked about in your report about the drought and policy. Talk a little bit about, about the policy issue uh, just briefly. Yeah, this is very interesting because it's one of those sorts of things um, where it was well-intentioned back in the early 1900s. They had had uh, wildfires in other parts of the country, uh, and so there was a federal policy 
that was promulgated. And the federal policy is important because 57% of California's forests belong to the federal government. Uh, we think we control our forests, but we only have 2% of it. About 35% is owned by uh, uh, private uh, parties. So 57% of the forests uh, owned by the feds. And the feds created in the 1900s a policy on fire suppression. In other words, if you have a fire, you got to put it out. So the first rule was we don't Which want... Which seems logical. Well, I mean, I mean, it does. And, it, and if you're living in the forest and if you're at risk, then you want that fire put out. Mm -hmm. And so they went from 10 acres, put it out, to the fire must be put out by 10 o'clock the next morning. Now, the consequences of that is exactly why we are in the situation where we are now. Because this policy to put out all fires right away has resulted in essentially making an unnatural forest. Yeah. Um, so why do you want a healthy forest? What's, uh, why do healthy forests even matter? Well, healthy uh, forests matter uh, because of air quality, for example, and also because 60% uh, of California's watersheds are located in the forest. And when you have the catastrophic fires that we have been experiencing for many, many years now, and if we don't change what we're doing, and we're going to continue to experience them, that impacts our water quality and it impacts our air quality. California is very focused on reducing greenhouse gases. It's interesting that in your report, which I did not know, that the carbon capture and storage is a significant part of the role that forests play. Well, healthy forests. I oh, mean, I yes. think that's important. Right. One, a, a role that the forests play, a healthy forest plays, is carbon capture. Um, and, and let me give you an example because it's the kind of forest that we have now. Uh, back in the day, before the policy, the federal policy, uh, a forest would have anywhere from 50 to 80 trees per acre. Large trees, healthy trees, strong bark. We now have anywhere from 300 to 400 trees per acre. Now you're thinking that's terrific, more trees. They're the wrong kind of trees because uh, with a healthy forest, taller trees actually have gaps up in the canopy. So that allows rain to reach the soil, that allows snow to reach the soil, that allows sunshine to reach the soil, which helps with all of the uh, processes that are important for that. A crowded forest, 300 to 400 per acre, you have small trees. Uh, they're not as healthy, and they are more uh, subject to catching fire and therefore creating the greater catastrophe. Yeah, so you say that, you know, we noticed, noted earlier that the federal government owns controls much of this land. So what is the state going to do? What can the state do? The state is going to take advantage, as they have been doing, of the, uh, the good neighbor policy that we have with the federal government. And so that calls for and provides for cooperation between the state of California and the federal government in managing uh, the forest. And, and California has been doing a good job of that in the areas where they've been able to. It requires additional cooperation with the feds and remember 35 percent of our forests belong in private or held in private hands you got to work with those folks too but what the state can do is be the catalyst to help uh, bring these things together. The other thing you mentioned in your report Lewis is fire suppression is also the cost of fire suppression are going up. Yeah you know we talk about um, uh, forest, forest fires we call them uh, as well as prescribed burns and managed burns so a prescribed burn is a, is a situation where you have personnel that are specifically trained in the techniques. Uh, they cooperate with uh, communities. They work with air, uh, air quality. Um, a prescribed burn costs about $200 an acre. $200 what does acre, fire suppression cost? About $830. Well, there you go. Right. That's quite a big difference. We're going to talk more about that in a minute. Uh, is fire management the answer to wildfires? That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. The Maddie Institute has become one of the most active public policy institutes in California because of support of people like you. 
because of that support, the Mandy Institute has highlighted San Joaquin Valley issues that are often overlooked by those in Sacramento and Washington. If you want the Valley to have a strong voice, and you believe in a fact-based, bipartisan, problem-solving approach to politics and public policy, please consider joining us as a Maddie Associate. You can learn more at MaddieInstitute.org. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. Uh, according to a recent report issued by the California's nonpartisan Little Hoover Commission, quote, for 100 years, a culture of fire suppression in California forests has led to disastrous results, unquote. Instead, they recommend that the state literally fight fire with fire. The chair of the Little Hoover Commission, Pedro Nava, is our guest here to explain uh, that recommendation. So you're talking about more frequent, low-intensity, talked about prescribed and managed fires, is better than fire suppression or mechanical thinning. Why? Well, let me correct something. I called it the good neighbor policy before it's a good neighbor authority. Okay. But anyway, uh, uh, fires, uh, comparing prescribed fire compared to fire suppression. We all know fire suppression. That's when all the trucks roll out because you've got this disastrous fire that's burning up hundreds and thousands of acres. Uh, and you uh, still think that's necessary where, where fires are near neighborhoods, of course. Well, uh, yeah, we're not saying that, that, you know, too bad, you're in a place where there's a fire, mm -hmm. you know, get over it. We're saying that when you've got life at risk and you've got uh, significant infrastructure that has to be protected, well then, yeah, of course, mm -hmm. you go right. put out the fire. But the point is that if you engage in fire management practices and forest management practices in advance, you're less likely to have the super fires that we have now. So a prescribed burn is when you have firefighters that are specifically trained in that kind of project who work with the Air Resources Board to identify the best time to have a prescribed fire, you can go through and at the cost of about $200 an acre, remove the underbrush, which is creating the threat because in many areas, it's been there for 100 years and it's dense and it burns hot and it quite literally destroys the soil. So uh, talk a bit more about how fire adapted forests are actually healthier. Well, you know, it's an interesting uh, thing because when I think about the forest and what I used to see, you see large trees, anywhere from 40 to 60 to 100 feet tall, who have very dense bark. Now, those are trees that have grown up uh, uh, with natural fire conditions. A natural fire thins out the vegetation on, on the forest floor. It also burns up what they call duff, which is like the bark and the rest of the, of the debris, so to speak, that's on the forest floor. And you need to get rid of that stuff because it has an impact on the health of the tree. Large trees are stronger, they are more resilient, their bark is more fire resistant. They have the ability to resist a, a pest like a bark beetle. Well, let, me, let me ask you this. Do you have any data that supports this idea that a natural fire approach is better than fire suppression? Yeah, there, there, there is a significant amount of research that has been uh, done in this by uh, scientists that have devoted uh, their careers to it. So yes, it's very firmly well established in the literature uh, that in order to have a healthy, resilient forest, you have to have this kind of fire. I think I actually read in your report there was a study done by a UC Berkeley professor who compared this mountain. One side was on the Mexican side, one side was on the American side. The Mexican side led it to a natural burn. The Americans did this kind of you know fire suppression. Right. Much healthier forest on the Mexican side. Right. And. It, uh, and I'm, I'm really very pleased that you've read the report in such detail. But, what, but you're absolutely right. The, we had this unique scenario where half of the forest was in the United States and the other half of the forest was in Mexico. On the United States side, they put the fires out and put the fires out, put the fires out. On the Mexican side, they had fires every so often, so it cleared out the underbrush. And the forest was healthier on the Mexican side. Then they had the drought came. Mm -hmm. And even with the consequences of the drought, 
the researchers found that the Mexican forest that had had fires still was in better shape than the American side. Well, talk a little bit about uh, this kind of uh, managed fire, the fires that occur naturally um, and allowed to burn. Well, those are primarily going to occur in areas of wildlands. Kind of like uh, remote areas. Well, uh, that's where it makes the most sense. Right. So I think if you, if you give thought to prescribed fires, which are those fires which are closely managed uh, by fire trained personnel, uh, and the other natural sort of fires, those are going to tend to take place further away from centers of population. So uh, what are some of the challenges, and let's talk about prescribed fires where you're controlling where the fire is. Right. What are the challenges to doing prescribed fires? Well, part of the challenge is getting the public to understand that it's actually a pref it's preferable uh, than to just uh, allow the forest to grow in the way it's been growing, where you then have the consequences of a, of a, of a super fire, so to yeah, speak. And they're, they're, I think people are worried that, oh, if you have a prescribed fire, that all of a sudden it's going to get out of control and it's going to go into neighborhoods. But that's not really the case. Well, as, as in most of life, there's nothing is 100% certain. Right. But with prescribed fires, you have, again, personnel, firefighters who have been trained. Uh, in those techniques, who so have identified the areas that are the best candidates for prescribed burns. You then work in conjunction with the Air Resources Board because you want to do this on a day, you don't want to, you don't want to do it on a day where the air quality is right. already bad. Right. And then you want to do it with the uh, geological services and the weather services because you want to have some sense of how how the winds are going to blow. And an interesting thing that was also, I, I did do a deep dive into your report, <laughs> there were 16,626 prescribed fires only 14 ended up escaping. So it's a minuscule number. So it's maybe a, something of concern. Maybe it's not as bad as people think it is. Um, well, what about uh, what can be done to address kind of the challenges using a fire management plan? That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Do you want the Valley's future political leaders to be civil, fact-based, bipartisan problem solvers? Consider supporting the Maddie Legislative Intern Scholar Program that provides Valley students with the opportunity to develop public leadership skills while gaining practical knowledge of the day-to-day -day operations of government and the political process. To learn more, log on to our website at maddieinstitute.org. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. We're talking with Pedro Nava, the chair of California's Little Hoover Commission, about a recent report entitled Fire on the Mountain that argues that forest fires, if properly managed, will result in healthier forests and fewer out-of-control wildfires. A big concern, however, is how forest fires, even the ones that are managed, impact carbon emissions and air pollution. We talked about that earlier. So people may not be aware of the fact that California forests are among the largest carbon sinks that we have in the state. They absorb and store a lot of carbon. Can you talk a little bit about that? What are the numbers? Right. Well, I, and I'm going to refer to my notes. because okay. I, the, So, for example, in 2010, the above-ground plants for our forests stored about 898 million metric tons of carbon. Mm. And those are really important in uh, sequestration. But we lose that when we have the wildfire. So for example, between 01 and 2010, we lost about 180 million metric tons of carbon due to those disturbances. Now, the point- So I'm doing the math quickly on this. They said something like 53 metric tons equals 11 million cars. So three times at 33 million cars. Right, right. And think about it. That's a lot of cars. That, no, and it's a lot of cars. And it really works against how, how sincere California is in reducing greenhouse gases. And we have a leadership role in the world in technology and application of reducing greenhouse gases. But it makes no sense for us to ignore one of the places where we are losing our ability to sequester carbon by not taking care of our I forests. think your reports is something like 25% reduction since the early 1900s in, in carbon capture. 
Right, and if you were to break that down into dollars and cents, how much more money do you think we would have to spend to recover that 25%? Either in, in uh, different applications of technology or in how we change our behavior. So if you want to, I guess what I'm saying is that healthy forests work hand in hand with the reduction of greenhouse gases and carbon capture. Yeah, see, you really see this as a system. It, it's not just discrete but, issues. Right. It all works together. Right. You know, it's interesting, wildfires don't count against air quality standards, right. but prescribed fires that you right. manage do. Right. Uh, and so they all increase uh, levels of PM2.5, which are those very, very small particles of air pollution that get in your lungs, that are in your bloodstream, that can right. be very damaging. So how do you change public perception on this issue? Well, we have a, we have a wonderful example, uh, and that is what California did in terms of the drought. Uh, uh, it used to be that people really didn't care too much about where water came from and believed that they had enough water to last forever and ever and ever. Well, we had a drought and it's been dramatic and it's been significant. And so California, with the State Water Resource Control Board and w with water districts throughout the state, agreed to put together a public education plan about saving California water. And it has been a tremendous success. And a few years ago, you might not have thought that it would have made much difference, but it does. We think you can do the same thing with the forest. We think that when you explain to people how important it is for California in terms of their air quality, their water quality, their recreational opportunities, that they'll begin to understand that that one-third of our state is something that's precious and needs to be Yeah, protected. I think they would focus on not the short-term implications of, of air quality, but the long-term implications. Right. And the other issue, too, we kind of, you've, you kind of touched on this, is that the larger trees have a bigger impact on air quality, you know, uh, carbon sequestration than the smaller ones. Right. So that's kind of important as well. Um, so we've got this thing called a forest carbon plan. Right. Um, the goals are calling for a half a million acres of non-federal land and a half a million acres of forest service land per year be kind of fixed. Um, mm -hmm. Another 10 to 15,000 acres of Bureau of Land Management a year be addressed. Right. That's like double the current standards. How likely is that to happen? Listen, you gotta, you've got to reach for the stars. I mean, it is going to be difficult, and it is going to be complicated. But quite frankly, most things that are worth doing, they are. If it were easy, it would have been done already by somebody else. But again, if we take a look at the economics, $200 an acre for a prescribed burn, over $800 for a forest fire. You either pay me now or you pay me later. And so we're going to need continued work with a good neighbor authority to work cooperatively, cooperatively with the federal government and with private landowners mm -hmm. to move forward in meeting those goals of addressing those 500,000 acres on one end and another 500,000. And it's really interesting what you're talking about really, it really is about changing from a reactive policy to a proactive policy. Now, it's costing us money now. Right. It's just that but we people don't, don't think about it, right? Th that's right. I mean, if, if you're responding to a forest fire and it's a crisis, everybody says, well, of course you have to pay that. But, if it, but we also need to get people to start thinking about why don't we just pay $200 now per acre instead of the $800 that you're going to have to pay later. And not only that, but the cost associated, the federal government is spending somewhere in the neighborhood of $2 billion a year on fire suppression in California. We can reduce that as well through an appropriate forest management plan. So where does the Air Resources, Air Resources Board fit into all this? Well, the Air Resources, again, as you mentioned, if you have a, if you have a, a forest fire, then it's like, the air is horrible, but it doesn't count against you as your, a local authority, local government. If you want to do a prescribed burn, then you have to calculate it very carefully. We need cooperation with the Air Board. One of the things that the Air Board does is they have many stationary monitors that evaluate the air quality. There now is, through technology, 
portable monitors and small units that can actually go to where you want to have the fire that are going to be more accurate and give you the best information so that you can work cooperatively with the airboard on when it is the best time to do a prescribed burn. Okay, well, we're going, to add, we're going to continue this conversation. What else can be done to tame California's wildfires? That conversation in a moment. This is the Matty Report. Looking for an unbiased, fact-based analysis of the key issues confronting the San Joaquin Valley? Listen to the Matty Report Valley Views podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Matty Institute. We're talking with Pedro Nava, chair of California's Little Hoover Commission, about a recent report they did on entitled Fire on the Mountain, basically talking about fighting fire with fire. Uh, one of your recommendations, though, is to better utilize uh, the wood being removed from forests. Uh, can you give me some examples of that? Yeah, as, as, um, as I mentioned, you know, a healthy forest has between 50 and 80 trees per acre. What we have now in some areas is 300 to 400 an acre. And so it's very small diameter lumber. They're not large trees. Uh, but the, uh, in some areas, they have uh, proven that they can be harvested and they can be prepared and then used as laminate. Uh -huh. And so, you know, California imports 80% of its wood products. We have a third of our state is forest, but we bring in 80% from other places. So we think one of the ways to help with the rural economies is to take these smaller trees um, and turn them into usable wood products. And in fact, the Tree Mortality Task Force does have a part of that group that is looking at doing that. Uh, and it's one of the ways that we can help rural economies and taking the material that is growing there as we thin our forests. But isn't one of the problems though the sawmills are kind of shutting down? Well, it is true, but you can, uh, uh, you can have smaller scale sawmills uh, using uh, current technologies uh, and put some of that wood to use. You also talk about biomass um, as kind of an energy source. It's not like it's going down. They're not using it as much as they used to. Yeah, biomass, biomass has a whole host of its own kind of unique, uh, people like the word challenges, mm -hmm. um, uh, in that it tends to be more expensive per kilowatt hour. Uh, there has to be a, an assessment of what they call least cost best fit. Uh, but biomass facilities, if they're using current technology, uh, can reduce uh, what they emit, uh, can uh, generate uh, uh, energy, and under the right circumstances, that can be sold back into the grid. But that's not going to be easy. Yeah, but it's also kind of a cost-benefit thing, right? It's, it's, yeah, we probably would prefer, you know, wind or solar or something like right. that, but in these situations to help deal with the forest issue, we need to get rid of this wood somehow. This is, uh, on, in, on balance, probably the right thing to do. Well, the conversation really has to be, again, least cost, best fit. What we've done in energy in California is focused almost exclusively on least cost. But if you take into consideration the point that you made with best fit, how does that contribute to the community? If you are taking material from the forest that you don't have to transport statewide, right. thereby reducing greenhouse gas in transport, and then using it to generate energy, you might actually come out with a better cost per kilowatt. Uh, yeah, net positive. So you talked about education too. I want to briefly touch on that. So it's kind of the Save Your Water, uh, Save right. Our Water campaign. And I think um, in your report it says that was only sixteen million dollars. That in the in the scheme of things, that's pretty inexpensive. Yeah, I mean when you when you think about the benefits that 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 can come about from managing our forests ap appropriately um, and educating the public, you know, the other side benefit to that is you begin to really understand how marvelous California is. That you've got a third of your state that is forest. That you've got people who, who make their livings uh, in, in the forest. You know, a forest in some of these rural communities is their Disneyland. It's their industrial center. It's their manufacturing center. It creates jobs for people who live in those places. Uh, they tend to be overlooked because they're rural right. and they're hard to get to. Uh, but I really do think one of the ways to honor everything that California is, is you have to, you have to 
recognize how important the forests are. Now I want to ask you this last thing about the governor's tree mortality task force. What would you like to see them do? We'd well, like to see them continue with this marvelous example of cooperation that they've demonstrated so far. The governor in his state of the state made reference to forming a, a forest management group. We think you can take the lessons and some of the people and some of the entities. There's 80. Can you imagine convening a, me a meeting with like 80 <laughs> no, representatives? There's 80 representatives in that tree mortality task force. They have figured out how to work together, how to trust each other, and how to keep their eyes focused on results. And you take all of those lessons, transfer some of those over to the forest management uh, uh, new effort, and I think that you're uh, a long way towards success. Well, I'd like to thank our guest, Pedro Nava, with the California's Little Hoover Commission for joining us. Always enlightening. This is Mark Kepler for The Matter Report. Thanks for joining us. The views expressed in the Matter Report are those of the individuals participating in the program and do not necessarily reflect those of the California Channel or the Matty Institute. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the points and opinions expressed on the Matty Report, visit our website at mattyinstitute.org. The Matty Report, Valley Views Edition, is a public affairs partnership between KMJ Radio, Cumulus Media, and the nonpartisan Matty Institute, providing the Valley with valuable insight and analysis on politics and important public policy issues. This is KMJ. We want to take a moment to thank you for listening to this program. A functioning democracy requires a well-informed electorate. Indeed, there's nothing more important. And by taking the time to become better informed, you're not only supporting fact-based decision-making, but you're doing your part to strengthen our democracy. Indeed, Thomas Jefferson once wisely noted that the best defense of democracy is an informed electorate. So thank you for being an engaged citizen and helping make the San Joaquin Valley and California better and our nation a more perfect union. Now, back to the program. It's not just the fire, it's the smoke too. Indeed, many of the air quality improvements we've made in reducing greenhouse gas emissions from factories and vehicles are being undermined by wildfire smoke, a growing source of pollution. Does this mean we should continue with our fire suppression strategies or should we move to more controlled burns? Admittedly, the options aren't great. But if we have to address the wildfire issue, which one's better? Up next, we'll talk to an expert on the impact on air quality posed by California wildfires. Welcome. Any of us who've lived in the valley for the last several decades know that wildfire smoke really is a growing fact of life, and it's a growing concern. Just how bad is wildfire smoke? Is it actually getting worse? Is there anything we can do about it? Those questions were the subject report by our guests. The report was entitled, Understanding the Challenges Posed by Wildfire Smoke in California. And our guest is Helen Kirstein. She is a principal uh, fiscal and policy analyst with the nonpartisan legislative analyst office. Uh, welcome back to the Maddie Report. It's been a little while. It has. Thanks for having me back again. Yeah, you know, you know, improving air quality in California generally, and certainly the Valley in particular, has been a big concern for decades. Um, and while the focus has been on reducing air pollution caused by vehicles and fossil fuels, what impact has wildfire smoke had on meaning the, the goal of cleaning up our air? Um, so you're right. I think the focus really has been on reducing emissions from stationary and non-stationary sources. So things like fossil fuel power plants are vehicles that we drive. Um, but I think uh, more and more we're realizing that the, the significant gains we've made in those areas are being um, to some extent offset by a new source of emissions. Well, not new. It's been around for, for a very long time, but um, one that's been increasing um, um, in importance in recent years, which is the, um, the air pollution from wildfire smoke. Yeah, I know one thing that was interesting in your report, and every time I see the number, it just shocks me, right? 12 of the 20 largest wildfires, that's 60% of the largest wildfires in, in recorded history in California, 
have happened in the last five years. I mean, you just think about that. That's that's really an incredible statistic. Why are wildfires becoming more common and more severe? Yeah, so there are two main reasons. Um, one is sort of the history of poor forest management in the state is kind of starting to catch up to us. Um, and there are a lot of reasons for this. One of, one of them is really um, that we've kind of suppressed our way out of fire for probably too long, right? Historically, in sort of the history of California, fire was part of the natural landscape and it was a common occurrence to have fire come through um, kind of at a low level. Um, and starting around 100 years ago, around the turn of the century, um, there really was a policy at the state and federal level to exclude fire, to put it out as soon as we could. Right. Um, of course, this is great for public safety, public health um, in the short term, but long run, it created um, really dense forests that are prone to when they when the inevitable happens and there is a wildfire, those wildfires becoming larger and more severe. So that's one reason. Um, and the other reason is, is climate change, um, which is has become more and more more and more of an issue in recent years. That leads to longer. Um, you know, longer dry seasons um, that, that makes for a longer wildfire season. It also leads to um, more frequent and severe droughts, which puts stresses puts stress on trees um, and can also contribute to these more severe and um, larger wildfires. Well, just, just to put in context, I've done some research and I found that in, in 1926, the U.S. Forest Service kind of started this kind of fire suppression policy. Historically, uh, there were about 4.5 million acres that were being burned. But between 1950 and 1999, it was down to 250,000 acres. I mean, just a dramatic yeah. reduction. And so a lot of that it forest just keeps growing and growing and it's not being burned away. Um, let me ask you this. You know, I moved here like 35 years ago. And when I first moved here, you know, I remember smelling wildfire uh, smoke. And then we have this, the smoke coming out of fireplaces. And it was kind of quaint in a way. It's kind of mm -hmm. like, you know, growing up and camping and all of that. Um, but pretty quickly, I realized man, this is happening over a long period of time. It's the summer wildfires, it's the winter fireplaces, and all of a sudden I started having like some breathing issues. Uh, what are some of the pollutants that are found in wildfire smoke? Um, so lots of different types of things. There's carbon, carbon monoxide, nitrogen oxide. Um, you can have trace metals. You can have um, particulate matter, fine particulate matter, um, all sorts of different stuff. Um, and it varies from fire to fire. So um, it really depends on what's being burned. It depends on the condition of those things, how dry the vegetation is, for example, um, whether there's there are things besides vegetation burning. So if there are homes, uh, for example, that are burned, we saw that a lot in the campfire, um, homes being burned. And sometimes some of the things that are produced from those, um, those structure fires can be pretty noxious in and of themselves. So you, you mentioned, you mentioned, I'm sorry, I'm interrupting. You, you mentioned uh, fine particulate matter. People refer to that in the, in the know they were PM. Um, what is fine particulate? matter? Um, so it's usually thought of as, as the pollutant of greatest concern. It's this pretty small stuff. Um, it's about 1 30th of the width of a human hair. So it's small. And it's just this, this little, these little particles. Um, and they can be suspended in the air. They can travel significant distances. Um, and they're small enough that they can get inside of, you know, in, indoor areas too, especially if indoor areas aren't well sealed. Um, and they can also travel to your through your body. So they can right. you know, travel to your respiratory system, even get into your bloodstream um, and lead to a lot of the health impacts that, um, that are seen with wildfires. And you're saying now that they're talking about that, I think in your report says half of the PM um, in the Western US uh, is coming from wildfire smoke. It used to be 20%. So it's a huge increase uh, in, in PM coming from wildfire smoke. Let me ask you this. You also mentioned in your report that uh, the impact of wildfire smoke on air quality is episodic. I mean, what do you mean by that? Is, yeah, so I mean, a lot of times we look at the average, right? Um, like you were just citing, and that's important. But wildfires, unlike many sources of pollution, wildfires aren't just steady. They happen, you know, at a constant amount, you know, throughout the year. 
they happen sort of in an, you know, in an episode, right? So there might be a big wildfire that might last, you know, and the smoke might last days or weeks. And then there might be some months and they, that might generate a lot of smoke and a lot of pollutants. And then there might be some, some months where we really don't get much pollution. So the average level kind of doesn't give us the whole story. It's a little, it's a little, yeah. it's a little misleading. Yeah. Well, up yeah, next, we're going to talk about Bad. Next, we're going to talk about the health implications of wildfire smoke. That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. The Maddie Daily E-Newsletter provides you with a quick, comprehensive, and up-to-date look at what's happening in Valley politics, as well as what's happening in Sacramento and Washington, D.C. that impacts the Valley. Be more informed about what's happening in your community and your Valley. Sign up for the Maddie Daily E-Newsletter at maddieinstitute.org. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. We're talking about the all-too-common occurrence uh, for us in the recent years, and that's wildfire smoke and what impact that has. We're talking with Helen Kirstein. She is uh, with the nonpartisan legislative analyst office, and she recently authored a report on the challenges caused by uh, wildfire smoke in California. Now, I'm just wondering, wildfire smoke is associated with a lot of uh, negative health impacts. Uh, what are they? Yeah, so there's been a lot of research on the impacts of wildfire smoke, um, and most of them have looked at basically smoke and use of ER visits, other kinds of hospital visits, those types of things. They've most consistently found impacts, sort of respiratory type of impacts, things like more asthma attacks. Um, there's also been some links to cardiovascular effects, so things like heart attacks. Um, and then there have been other, other associations that have been found in the research as well, including um, pregnancy outcomes um, that have been poorer or low birth weight, for example. Um, increased mortality has also been found. So there's really a range of impacts, um, and smoke potentially can, can affect a variety of parts of the body. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 just you think respiratory that's understandable, but all these other things like wow, it really does add up. Um, you also explored the effect of wild, wildfire smoke on uh, it's having on people's lives beyond just the health implications. What else did you find? Yeah, so the, a lot of the research, as I mentioned, is really related to things like hospital visits, but sometimes. Uh, there's there's thinking that wildfire smoke can have impacts that you know they might not be severe enough to send you to the ER, but they can still affect your body. Um, and so some of the things that have been found are, um, for example, when they've looked at people's performance on brain training games, they just don't do as well necessarily with with wildfire smoke, um, the presence of wildfire smoke. Similarly, there's been impacts um, associated with poor labor outcomes and and reduced kind of um, uh, labor force participation and earnings, those types of things. So yeah, that's actually, that was one thing I looked at, I saw in your report that I found really kind of startling, frankly, it said, you said that it reduced nationwide earning from jobs about 2% a year, which is $125 billion a year from 2007 to 2019. Wow. Uh, we're not talking millions, we're talking billions of dollars in economic impacts uh, in terms of jobs and wages. That's a pretty big hit. Yeah, that was a nationwide. There was that was a study that looked sort of nationwide. But mm -hmm. yeah, I mean the, the potential impacts they they affect so many people, right? So even if you know even if it only affects people's productivity to a relatively small degree, um, when that you know when these impacts are are felt over you know a large geographic area, um, they can really have significant impacts. Yeah, the other, another interesting thing in your report is you you were saying that it, exposure to wildfire smoke doesn't impact everyone equally. Um, so what are the key factors that make some individuals more vulnerable to wildfire smoke than others? Yeah, so we sort of looked at it and there's sort of three main things to think about. One is exposure. Some people are just exposed more often, right? Um, you know, maybe it's because of their job, um, maybe it's for other factors, but they're just exposed more often. Also, some folks are just more sensitive. So given the same amount of exposure, they might have more severe effects from wildfire smoke than others. And then there's adaptive capacity, right? Some people may have the ability, the resources to mitigate the effects 
better than others. Um, so there are a variety of different different contributors. Yeah, and, and mitigation includes like, for example, sealing your home. A lot of people think, oh, the smoke is outside. No, actually it comes inside. And if you can't have sealed windows or air purifiers, it, it's coming right into your house. So uh, yeah, that, that's how it impacts that. You also mentioned, and this kind of ties into that, that exposure to smoke varies within populations. Um, so who are some of the most vulnerable when it comes to wildfire smoke? Yeah, I mean, it really ties to those factors, right? So sometimes, you know, it can depend on your health status. So if you have an underlying condition, say you have um, asthma already, it's, it's much more likely that that's going to be exacerbated by wildfire smoke. Um, some folks are more vulnerable because they're either really young or really old, um, or, um, you know, those, those of us sort of, but you know, there are certain groups that are more vulnerable. Um, occupation can be important too. Um, so folks like firefighters that are on the line fighting fires um, and experiencing a lot of smoke, they may have more, more significant impacts because their exposure is just more frequent. Um, you know, similar to working outside. Yeah, like, like, like agriculture workers uh, working outside, you can't do that inside, again, exposure to smoke. It kind of reminds me of, of valley fever, too, and it's the same basic thing that you're exposed, if you're outside, you're more likely to have negative health uh, consequences as a result. You also talked about socioeconomic status. That's right, and I mean, that's both because those folks may not have, you know, maybe they don't have um, homes that are as well sealed, but also um, they may not have the adaptive capacity. I mean, that was one of the other factors that I mentioned. If you don't have a lot of economic resources, you may not be able to purchase air purifiers. You may not be able to leave an area that, that has high smoke levels. Um, you may have to work outdoors because right. that's, that's your livelihood. So um, that's right. a really important factor in affecting vulnerability. So the question is what, what can or should the government do to, to address those issues? That conversation in a moment. The Matty Institute was established by a unanimous vote of the California legislature in 1999 to honor the work of Senator Ken Matty, one of the most effective state legislators in the last half of the 20th century. Our focus is on making the political process work through fact-based, bipartisan compromise and respect. Originally established at California State University, Fresno, the Matty Institute has expanded to include the Valley's other public universities, California State University Bakersfield, California State University Stanislaus, and UC Merced working together to effectively improve understanding and analysis of public policy issues impacting the Valley. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. We're discussing the negative effects of wildfire smoke. So what uh, is or what should the state, federal and local governments be doing to address this issue? We're talking with Helen Kirstein. She is a policy analyst with the Nonpartisan Public Policy Institute, who recently authored a report on the challenges posed by wildfire smoke in California. So what are some of the approaches that can be taken to mitigate some of the effects of wildfire smoke? What can people do? So one of the things that's good is there are a lot of things that people can do. Um, one of the most effective is if you can just to leave the area, um, you know, that, that gets you away from the smoke. Um, but most people probably can't do that. Um, so you can go indoors and you can try to cre create cleaner air spaces. And part of that is about sealant, sealing, you know, keeping your windows and doors closed, trying to have better sealing. Um, in your in your home, um, and then also trying to run you know run air purifiers if you have an HVAC system, run a good fine you know fine um, filter. Um, if you don't have a portable air filter, those are some some key things. Also, if you're outside, um, a good well fitting mask can be really important. The famous, the famous N95 mask. It, yeah. That business is there's always seems to be a reason why you might need an N95 mask, but this is another reason why you might might need one. Um, and even but even leaving though was interesting. I saw that one approach is just leave. Uh, get away from the, the smoke. But, you know, I've been in situations where, you know, there's a lot of smoke here in the valley, and then you go to the coast, even just like San Diego, and you're still smelling wildfire smoke. I mean, some place, sometimes if you're in California, it's hard to find a place where you're not going to kind of breathe that 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 air. Um, that, that's kind of a challenge. 
So what are the barriers of, that exist for individuals uh, in implementing some of these mitigation strategies? What's, what's the problem? There are a lot of barriers, right? I mean, leaving, you know, you have to have the reason, most of us have jobs or school or something that keeps us where we live. We have, that's where our homes are. We can't necessarily afford to leave. Um, and even, you know, running a, you know, buying an air purifier can be cost prohibitive for some people, um, affording the, you know, the uh, electricity for their HVAC system or for their purifier can be sometimes a barrier. And then sometimes we have things like, you know, the electrical, we, we lose our power during a wildfire. Yeah, right. The, I mean, right. to a number of us recently, right? And when that happens, you can't run it. So there are a lot of barriers. There are a lot of things that are outside individuals' control. Um, so while you know there are many things people can do, um, you know there are limitations as well. Yeah, and you know, the electrical lines might have caused the fire to begin with, right? I mean, I, I did some, uh, done some programs on this, and at least in the past, they have, they have had uninsulated wires, uh, high tension wires, going through the forest, and when they break or whatever they cause fires, which seems amazing to me that they didn't insulate the wires, but it's it's happened and it's caused some problems being addressed though. Um, so individuals can only do so much. So what are local, state and federal governments doing or should be doing to kind of address this problem? So I mean, this is one of these issues that's not just a local issue, not just a state issue, not just a federal issue, it's everything. Um, and so local governments have really important roles. This, there are local air quality management districts that play a really crucial role here, tracking data, um, you know, issuing public health advisories, those types of things, um, you know, and uh, also air public local public health officials are really important um, in doing those advisories um, and, and letting people know what they should be doing. Um, but the state also has a role, right? We have- um, well, you're, really, you're really focused on that in your report. You're focusing really on two agencies, right? The ARB and the Department of Public Health. What should they be doing? What are they doing? What should they be doing? Yeah, so and part of the reason why we focus on them is, you know, we our office we work for the legislature, so a lot of our focus is advising, you know, advising state policymakers. Um, but the state does have an important role, and those agencies are doing a number of things. They're disseminating a lot of information. They actually there's a new application, a new app on on folks' phones if you want to download it, California Smoke Spotter, um, that has great information about. Um, tracking wildfires, both ones that are intentionally set prescribed fires, as well as um, naturally occurring fires and, and the smoke that's caused from those, um, you know, issuing guidance. There's also the state is launching a couple of um, pilot. Pro there's a pilot program that the state um, is launching in collaboration with local air quality management districts. And that's really to see if, if having centers, establishing centers and funding those centers is an effective way to help um, people get, so, get away from smoke. The clean air centers where people can go up there, you know, then get purified air, basically. Um, yeah, right. Exactly. So they're, they're not their own homes or they're outside or whatever. Yeah. So the idea would be that there would be backup generators. So you you know if you lose power at your house, you can go there. But also there would be filtration, so the air would be cleaner. I think a lot of the challenges we don't really know how effective they are, at, at, and part of it how effective they actually are in practice will depend on you know do people actually go to them and use them, and or do they stay there for? I mean. It's, it's kind of hard to expect people to, to go to a, you know, a center and stay there for a prolonged period of time. So um, I think we're still trying to figure out you know, how effective, you know, how much does it cost to, do, to, to run one of those types of programs? And you know, is that the most cost-effective approach? Um, so that's, that's kind of an experiment the state is running right now. All right, well, up next, we're gonna talk about what else the state can do to address uh, wildfire smoke in the coming years. What should they do in the future? That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. The Maddie Institute has become one of the most active public policy institutes in California because of support of people like you. Because of that support, the Maddie Institute has been able to highlight San Joaquin Valley issues that are often overlooked by those in Sacramento and Washington. If you want the Valley to have a strong voice, and you believe in a fact-based, bipartisan, and problem-solving approach to politics and public policy, please consider joining us as a Maddie Associate. 
You can learn more at MattyInstitute.org. The Matty Institute is your public affairs institute. We are an alliance of the Valley's four public universities, Fresno State, California State University Bakersfield, Stanislaus State, and UC Merced, that have joined forces to better serve the residents of the San Joaquin Valley. Our goal is to support a fact-based, bipartisan, problem-solving approach to the public policy challenges we face as a region, state, and nation. You can learn more about the activities of the Maddie Institute by logging on to our website at maddieinstitute.com. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. You know, as the state legislature and the governor uh, begin to formulate their approach to wildfire smoke, what kind of factors should they be considering in making their calculations? Um, we're talking with Helen Kirstein. She is with the nonpartisan legislative analyst office, recently authored a report entitled Understanding the Challenges Posed by California Smoke. Uh, let, me, let me start from the top again. I'm sorry, I kind of bollocks that. I'm just going to keep going. Just go do a single shot again. We'll start again. Sorry, Helen. No problem. I kind of fumbled all over myself there. Okay, here we go. Uh, this show 1225, segment four, um, three, two, one. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. You know, as the state legislature and the governor formulate their approaches to deal with the effects of wildfire smoke, what factors should they be considering? We're talking with Helen Kirstein. She's the, with the nonpartisan legislative analyst office. She recently authored a report entitled Understanding the Challenges Posed by Wildfire Smoke in California. By the way, I want to tell our audience, um, if you're interested in having really fact-heavy analysis of public policy issues, it's hard to find a better place than the legislative analyst office uh, and their website. So I strongly encourage you to take a look at their website and read some of their reports or certainly the executive summaries. You'll be extremely informed if you do. Um, so a little plug for, for the legislative analyst office because you do great work. Um, so let me ask this question. So what are some of the additional actions that, that governmental agencies could take to address this problem? Um, thanks so much. So yeah, there are a variety of, of different options that we lay out in the report. Um, so for example, I mentioned there are a lot of different departments and agencies at different levels of government that are involved in this. So one of the things the state could do is do some more coordination there. Um, the state could do more of these pilots. I and mean, we talked about the also about the pilot for the clean air centers. So that's the kind of thing that the state is probably, you know, potentially positioned to do is um, to, to help fund research, help fund pilots to figure out what are the best approaches. Um, and then one thing I wanted to mention that I think is kind of counterintuitive um, that viewers might be interested in is potentially um, expand our use of prescribed fire. That's fires. That's something that the state is doing. Um, and it could be a really- I was, Is there a difference between prescribed fires and beneficial fires? Are they the same thing or are they different? Well, so beneficial fires is sort of a broader category, right? And it includes prescribed fires, um, which are you know intentionally set basically for um, for these sort of purposes, ecological um, and fire fire resilience purposes. There's also managed fires. So if there's already a fire that's out there, sometimes folks will um, you know instead of you know if the conditions are right and it's not the thinking is that it won't spread. Sometimes it's managed rather than just suppressed immediately. Um, and then there's cultural burning is another example that Native American tribes have done for. Um, you know, probably millennia to steward um, steward lands. Yeah, what's what's old is new again. Um, you know, if we were doing it the right way, we you know we kind of messed that up a little bit. But yeah, but though it does sound counterintuitive to actually start a fire to reduce pollution. Um, it, it sounds counterintuitive, but actually that's what the research is, is basically showing. And it, also, you mentioned in your report, um, you know, education, targeting individuals and communities. We talked about uh, for assistance for those folks. And then you know managing managing wildfire. It's interesting that that actually people don't understand that the federal government owns more. I think almost close to sixty percent of all the forests in California, which is kind of kind of surprising that they own that much. But that's also a huge issue. Let me ask you this: uh, You noted that the state has limited funding and resources, uh, so it's got you have to target those resources. Uh, 
to the place where they're most effective in dealing with this problem. So what criteria should they be using to consider how to allocate funding? Um, so we outline a, a variety of them. I think one of the key things is activities that really lend themselves to a state role. So which things should does the state really need to be doing? Um, a lot of times that's things that need to happen at a larger scale rather than at a community level. Um, activities where there's really a demonstrated need um, that's beyond what's being met right now. Things that are cost effective, right? So our money can go as far as possible. Um, also really targeting these vulnerable populations. As I mentioned, you know, wildfire smoke doesn't affect everyone equally. There are certain populations that are more affected. So it probably makes sense to try to target resources there. Um, and then if there's a co-benefit, I mean, as you mentioned, things like, um, you know, the masks or even air filtration, you know, air purifiers, those can have other benefits related to, for example, um, you know, COVID-19 and other um, types of viruses. So um, I thought, that, I thought that. that in your report, I'm sorry, Helen, I, I, I thought that in your report was really interesting that, you know, the co-benefits think, oh, we're just solving this one problem, but actually you could be solving multiple problems, which is a effect, effective and efficient way to use government resources. So how would you sum up the, the threat of wildfire smoke on the average Californian, you know, generally, but Valley residents in particular? Yeah, so I think it's it's going to be a part of our lives, both because we're probably going to see more of these large severe wildfires with climate change, um, and it's going to take us a long time to climb out of the the poor forest health issues, but also because we need to be doing more prescribed fire. I think that's you know historically a lot of the state burned every year, as you mentioned, um, and that's that's really what our how our state the ecosystem you know evolved to uh, to support, and so I think that's going to be a part of life, and really we need to learn to live with it and figure out ways that we can mitigate the effects, especially on the most vulnerable Californians. Yeah, and then when they were talking about, you know, uh, forest uh, lumber and tim timber industry, which is a portion of the solution, but it's nowhere near enough to, to address all the, the, the timber and, and potential fire hazards that exist out there. It, it's one small part of the, of the situation. Prescribed burns are going to be a big part of it. I want to thank our guest, Helen Kirsten, with the Nonpartisan Legislative Analyst Office for joining us. If you want to stay current with state and local politics, you can sign up for our free e-news aggregator called the Maddie Daily by logging on to our website at maddieinstitute.com. This is Mark Kepler for the Maddie Institute. Thanks for joining us. The views expressed in the Maddie Report are those of the individuals participating in the program and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Maddie Institute. If you'd like to share your thoughts about today's episode of the Maddie Report, please visit our website at maddieinstitute.org. The Maddie Report, Valley Views Edition, is a public affairs partnership between KMJ Radio, Cumulus Media, and the nonpartisan Maddie Institute, providing the Valley with valuable insight and analysis on politics and important public policy issues. This is KMJ.